Hello, this is the Atlanta Storytellers Podcast. My name is John Carr. There are so many great literary shows, poetry shows, and storytelling shows here in Atlanta. So many amazing artists producing incredible work that lives and sometimes dies at these performances. This podcast is designed to capture that work and share it with the rest of the world. And so, here are some of those stories. This is Elena Huff Tucker, and today I'm sharing a piece called Yesterday's Daughter, a poem I wrote a couple of years ago. I was writing a lot of poetry after my daughter was born because I was feeling a little lost personally and um, doing creative things helped me find myself again. Um, This is a long form poem that I wrote about the nature of memory that we're kind of not in control of what we get to remember, what we forget. Um, And sometimes you really wish you could pick and choose what stays and what goes. I performed this for the first time at the now gone Naked City uh, in a small, intimate room, and um, it felt very naked to share this uh, this piece about my daughter and my experience with motherhood and how I wish I could remember some and wish I could forget some. Uh, it's called Yesterday's Daughter. I remember how I burned the image of your fragile face onto my heart with purposeful determination in the orange lamplight of 2 a.m. The glow cast shadows in tearless streaks from feather lashes mirrored on your father's cheeks as I sat awake beside him. Tiny breaths hummed through pouted lips mingling with the sounds of rain, soft and white from the noise machine. A lullaby sung to me half awake that kept me teetering on the edge of waking love and fretful dreams. And I held you, with your head in my hands, staring through the darkness between us, straining hard to really see, to take all this softness, the fullness of your bottom lip, the sweetness of your rounded countenance, and harden it, into memory. And I screamed at my heart again and again to remember, remember, and save it away for when you are no longer mine. But I don't. Not as well as I would like. Though I tried my hardest, there was just too much chaos in those early times. If only remembering were willfully done, but a heart can't be persuaded with repetition and intensity. It's as if it knows just which things hold the heaviest weights, the ones that crush with overwhelming gravity. So it closes off itself to protect from pains that are too great, whether they be ugly or too beautiful to bear, and will indiscriminately erase that which it deems a threat to peace, even if it be the silken peach of my baby's hair. It has been like that every day, my heart, making beautiful memories of the best and worst that push out all the lesser ones. But sometimes something important gets pushed 
or never makes it in at all, and though I frantically search, it's gone. The you that was is gone as well, and in her place, a new girl grins, unknowing how I ache for her, or how I mourn for yesterday's daughter, who is but a memory made from flower petals, static, feathers, and ether. I was terrified before you came that I wouldn't know quite how to love, but that has been the easy part. The real terror is being keeper of a life that trusts the tremoring swaddle of my hand around her butterfly heart. So I must forgive myself for forgetting the sound of your red-faced cry or just how small you felt against my chest. And remember that I do remember the first time that you said I love you and understood completely what you had said. And forgive myself for being unable to forget the way you came and how I broke in a way that won't get better. And remember that there's much to come and though some of it will disappear, some is part of me forever. How exciting it is, not knowing which parts of you will stick to me until they've wiggled deep into my bones. My only hope is some of me will make it into you as well and make a nest within your heart and call it home. Hi, my name is Shannon Turner. I'm a professional storyteller and story coach based here in the Atlanta area. I'm going to be reading my piece, Still Life with Mason Jars, which I just submitted to The Sun. Every time I go home to visit my grandmother, certain things occur. One, she asks if I'm dating. Two, she bemoans the state of the world despite the fact that all the people she prefers are currently in power. Three, we watch a rotation of Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and the Hallmark Channel. Four, at least one painfully long silence descends. I would rather watch even Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy than talk about the topic she has chosen, which is usually politics or my dating life. Five, I give her a pedicure. She presses a $20 bill into my palm, like I'm a politician she's trying to bribe. I make ardent protests. She mentions how much she'd rather I do her feet than those people in the shopping center, her coded language to disguise the racism. Six, as I'm preparing to leave, she asks if I'm doing okay. Others might mean this question in a health or spiritual manner. She means money. She fills my arms with canned goods and leftovers. At times in my young adult life, I bristled at the final step. Felt she was implying I wasn't taking care of myself properly. The hidden message was that I needed to try harder, get out of my nonprofit lifestyle. Until I reached a comfortable plateau, perhaps marriage, she needed to keep me alive, nine cans of Hormel Frankenbeans at a time. One day, after I'd had enough therapy, it hit me. It happened when I was standing at her door, arms loaded, and she said, Oh, but what about some tuna? I just looked at her square in the eyes and said, I love you too, Ma. She stared back at me blankly caught at her own game. I've made this joke with her many times since, and it only works about half the time. She hates it. This is not a woman who likes to talk about feelings in the most roundabout way. 
As I've grown more health conscious, I've gotten better at saying no to her store-bought canned goods and yes to home canned goods. These days, the supply of the latter is dwindling. They're like gold to me. Two years ago, my father did something shocking and awful. It was so horrible that I don't want to get into the specifics, but it was compounded by the fact that he refused to apologize or admit fault in any way. Apologies were never on his to-do list, even in the most mundane circumstance, so I suppose it wasn't a huge surprise that things went that way. The event tore our family apart, breaking everything in reality as we knew it. In response, my mom did something very brave and left him within a week, ending their 44-year marriage. We spent the better part of the last two years living in this through-the-looking-glass world. I haven't spoken to my father since. In the final years of my parents' marriage, they lived on a small farm. They canned a lot of delicious homegrown food. For the rest of my life, my nose will recall the smell of fruits and vegetables in mason jars cooking on a stove. I can close my eyes and see the beauty of all those jars, their gorgeous colors arranged on a pantry shelf, the orange-red of the tomatoes, the khaki green beans floating in their salty juices, the deep purple of the blackberry jam, the strange off-white of sauerkraut, all lined up on their shelves like stripes in an Appalachian pride flag. Often asked to come home to help with canning, I never wanted to. I found any excuse to be unavailable. The thought exhausted and sickened me. I enjoyed the results of their labor, but I never wanted to see how the figurative sausage got made. Part of me, I think, could feel the growing resentment in their marriage. My father loved to garden and spent many hours out on his little square of land. I think the only peace he ever really knew came when he worked the soil and then stood in the evening air to survey his work. I watched him through the window out there in the gloaming, wondered what he thought about in those moments, and wished I could preserve him there so he wouldn't shuffle back inside with all the anger that seethed behind his crooked front tooth. Middle of the summer, he would start to bring in his crop, ceremoniously plopping his yield on the kitchen countertops. The piles grew and grew. He spread tomatoes of every variety and size on newspaper and towels on every available surface. The remainder of the work was left to my mother. She didn't want to do it, had never been asked, and some of the produce began to spoil before she started. She was tired from a lifetime career of nursing and a lot of pain from a body that betrayed her through a variety of illnesses, and the last thing she wanted now was to be a farm wife. This was how other aspects of their relationship worked, too, or didn't. Push and pull, nag and rest. Anyway, their combined efforts paid off. Despite the mood of creepy, controlling tension in the dining room, we smiled and nodded over the preserved fruits of their labor. One day recently, about to depart, I found myself staring yet again at the wall of my grandmother's pantry. Somehow when I tell this story, people always want to know which of my parents Ma is the parent for. She is my mother's mother. Thank goodness his mother didn't live to see what her son was capable of. In the final years of seeming normalcy, after all my other grandparents had passed away, Ma and my parents had become a tight little unit. They swapped food and household items several times a week, which is how my grandmother came to amass so much of my parents' canning. However, her pantry collection has slowly turned from half-glass jars from the time before to mostly Food City brand metal cans she's bought more recently. 
As I was saying no to this and maybe to that, she picked a couple of mason jars of green beans up from the bottom shelf. Although both had the same year on the lid in my mother's beautiful handwriting, I always meant to make her some labels. One looked a funny color. The juices were pinkish. That jar's not right, Ma. I think it's turned. She smirked at it dismissively, set it back on the shelf, and handed me another. At my own home, I maintained a special shelf dedicated to my parents' jars. I went to it for special occasions. I might be cooking dinner for a gentleman caller or friends I wanted to impress, or maybe I was feeling homesick. Since the great departure from reality, my shelf has dwindled like my grandmother's stock. I stopped thinking about that shelf. It made me sad. A week or so after bringing home the green beans, I had just the right plans for them. I would fix one of my favorite meals, made completely of summer veggies, green beans, corn on the cob, new potatoes and rosemary, and, of course, sliced tomatoes. I opened the beans. My nasal passages were immediately assaulted by the most rancid smell I have had the misfortune to encounter, and I've come across some pretty bad smells. Working at a camp while in college, I cleaned porta potties, one of which had been misplaced and forgotten for an entire season. In my 20s, my basement apartment in the Virginia woods featured one wall in the bathroom closet so attractive to mice that, trapped, they died in it. My roommate and I endured the ripe fragrance of their decomposition every few months. When I worked for a dance company, the grease trap in the parking lot out back, shared by several nearby restaurants, baked in the sun every blessed summer day. Awful. Yet I have never smelled anything like these beans. It was like a dead man's halitosis. I pulled my shirt up over my nose, raced outside, and dumped them in the far corner of the backyard. Then I put the jar in the dishwasher and forgot about it. When, a couple of days later, I thought to put a few more things in the dishwasher's unwashed half-load, I opened the door and again was nearly knocked off my feet by the stench. I ran the dishwasher half-full. Later... As an environmentalist who eschews the heat cycle, I opened the dishwasher to let things air dry. That smell? Still there. Now it had invaded all the other dishes. I ran a second cycle with soap and bleach, mourning the waste of water. Afterward, the stink remained, only somewhat less. In surrender, I put away the dishes, then placed ramekins of bleach, vinegar, and baking soda inside the dishwasher and put the offending jar away in a cabinet with all my beautiful, now-empty collection of mason jars I save for soup leftovers, trail mix, or candle holders. A few days had passed when I went to the cupboard for a jar. The entire cupboard smelled like fetid compost. How was this even possible? I became locked in a pattern, lured unconsciously into my own ritual. About twice a week, I'd visit the dishwasher, then the cupboard, and inhale their atmospheres like a drug-sniffing dog. The smell stayed unpleasant, but I was fascinated with its slowly receding awfulness. It was like when someone says, This smells awful! Here! Smell this! That urge to make a horrific sense experience communal and shared witnessed and justified. Eventually, I got one of those car deodorizers for the cabinet. My jars now smell like ocean breezes or spring rain or some such. I started to think about the green beans episode as a sign, a message, but of what I wasn't sure. After two years of not speaking to my father, was the jar a final revenge he managed to exact upon me? 
Maybe it involved a wider curse, the sins of my family handed down to me with a screw-off lid. If you tell a secret, you open a can of worms or spill the beans, but what if you open a can of beans? In the end, I concluded that smell was the specter of deep, persistent, near-impossible-to-shake grief. There's no covering it up, no absorption rate that's measurable. Gradually, so slowly it's barely noticeable, throw the doors open, let the light shine in, and the air blow through. One day, an empty jar becomes not a reminder of what once filled it, but a vessel for something new. Hi, my name is Teresa Davis. Um, I produced a one-woman show um, in 2017 um, called Then They'll Tell You It's All in Your Head. Um, it was done at Seven Stages as part of their homebrew series. And um, this is one of the pieces that is in part of that production. It's called Gentrified. When she started, I thought, maybe she did not hear. Maybe she did not realize I was telling my own story, my narrative, my who, what, why, and when. But I know she heard me in her progressive way. She started, and I thought... Maybe she did not hear that this is about my torn, my son, his happy birthday. He is getting so big that I am worried this world will see him as dangerous black boy the way he is growing. Maybe she didn't realize I was telling my own story. Maybe she misunderstood the clarity of my statement when she touched my back. I felt the implied familiar, her tongue in my mouth thinks she could tell my story better than me. When she touched my back, I wanted to break her arm, but that would make me angry black woman who did not understand she was on my side. All the boys need prayer. But my story is not all the boys, just my black boy, the way he is growing. All the boys need prayer, she says, rubbing my back with her unbroken arm, her tongue in my mouth, prying my story from me, reducing my son, my fear, to all boys for her comfort, maybe she didn't realize I was telling my own story. But I know she heard me in her progressive way, her tongue all over my story, down my throat, while I search for a response that will not validate what she already thinks. My mouth cannot find the right road to travel. Reducing my son, my fear, my stories to all boys for her comfort, my personal GPS cannot find a response to throw in her direction as she drags me off course while colonizing my truth, invading my space, touching me without my permission, her progressive gentrification all over my body. She does not remember that I know the P in her GPS means her privilege will always know in what direction she is going, even if she has to step over the bodies of black boys or the voice of a black boy's mother to get there as long as she gets there. There are so many shows with pieces just like the ones you've heard being produced all over Atlanta. Take some time, go see a show, and experience one of these pieces live. Live.